Good evening, everybody. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSE. It's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight. It's my pleasure because this is going to be a great session and because this is one of those moments when I'm not in a committee meeting, I'm not in my office, I'm not talking to funders. This is an actual intellectual event. It's wonderful to be here. And it's a good occasion to the launch event for the Oxford Handbook on the History of Nationalism. So our theme is nationalism and transnational history. I want to say just a bit to introduce that and then introduce the panel. Um, but let me uh, welcome you all and let me comment a bit on the importance of this theme. And I'm going to say it's two themes that are significant. One is history, right? And history as a social science and as part of these social sciences in a broad and general way it's important for the LSE to keep remembering that we look at a world that is the product of an always ongoing incomplete history, that things are happening and shaping the world, that the past is alive in contemporary events, but that not everything that could have happened happened, and that we teach history. We actually have two history departments. We engage historically in a number of other departments. So there's historical research in government. There's historical research in sociology. There's historical research in a range of programs around the LSE to engage the core questions of how the world is organized and why. And nationalism is one of the key themes in this. So it's appropriate to think about the extent to which looking at nationalism is not simply a topic of some interest that we can look at, but a basic factor in the structuring of our world, in giving it the shape and the contours, the units of action, and some of the problems and issues that it has. So to have a handbook on the history of nationalism is to have an important book of history, but an important book that opens up historical dimensions to a variety of social science issues and contemporary social and public issues. As John Bruyi notes in his introduction to the handbook, he agreed to edit this collection of 36 essays because he felt there was not enough history in existing texts. That is, there is no shortage of books on the topic of nationalism. I have committed two of those. And uh, the point that John is making is a good one. There's an act of literature. It sometimes makes reference to the past. It often makes reference to the past in ways that are not historical research, but are broad sort of global contrasts, uh, the, the primordial and the modern, or something like that. And so John has suggested there needs to be more history in the way we think about nationalism. The goal is to provide a global coverage of the history of nationalism in its different aspects, ideas, sentiments, politics, and through three distinct phases of the emergence of nationalism, the age of nation states, and more recent challenges to the predominance of nation states. <clears throat> essays on everyday national sentiment and racial ideas in fascism are accompanied by chapters on nationalist movements opposed to existing nation states, nationalism and international relations, and the role of external intervention into nationalist disputes within states. In addition, the book looks at the major challenges to nationalism 
international socialism, religion, pan-nationalism, that is, nationalisms challenge each other to a certain extent, and globalization, before a final section, considering how historians have approached the subject of nationalism. Now, let me close as I began by saying this is really important. It's not just one subject among many, but it is something that shapes the way the world in which we deal with politics, in which we collect economic statistics and look at input-output matrices, in which we conceive of what a society is, how that world is organized, as well as how particular movements and politics are organized um, and organized today in Britain, in case you haven't noticed, there's been this little kerfuffle over immigration and European Union and the UK Independence Party. These are present-day issues, and they have histories, and they also merit comparison to other ways in which nationalism has become significant. And this informs the range of things we do here at the LSE. Let me introduce our panelists. Mark Hewitson, who will speak first, is the senior lecturer in German history and politics and chair of the Center for European Studies at University College London. I should say that academics are very nationalist, and we at LSE are absolutely patriotic, but we're sort of liberal nationalists, and we let people come from University College. Um, <clears throat> Mark's publications include books on national identity and political thought in Germany, Germany and the Causes of the First World War, He's also currently working on a book uh, entitled The People's Wars, German Images and Experiences of Conflict from 1792 to 1914. Faisal Devji is a reader in Indian history at the University of Oxford and author of three books, Landscapes of the Jihad, The Terrorist in Search of Humanity, and The Impossible Indian, Gandhi and the Temptation of Violence. A book entitled Muslim Zion, Pakistan as a Political Idea is due out later this year with Harvard University Press, and Faisal's currently engaged in work on the history of nonviolence, the globalization of militancy, and the relationship between ethics and politics in modern political thought in South Asia. <clears throat> Speaking last is the man who made this event possible, John Bruyi, Professor of Nationalism and Ethnicity at the London School of Economics, and editor of the Oxford Handbook on the History of Nationalism. John's book publications include, but are not limited to, Nationalism and the State, Germany's Two Unifications, Anticipations, Experiences, Responses, and Austria, co-edited with Ronald Spears, and Prussia and the Making of Modern Germany, 1806 to 1871. <clears throat> John is working on a book provisionally entitled A Global History of Nationalism. But tonight, we will have comments from Mark and from Faisal and a response from John, and we'll open the floor for discussion. A little bit of housekeeping just before I stop. <clears throat> we will end this discussion, no matter how heated it gets to be, in time to go to the reception at 8 in the senior dining room of the LSE, where there will be copies of the book available. That is to say, you can have free bad wine and buy a good book. <clears throat> the uh, copies of the book will be available at a 20% discount 
And I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart that it's absolutely wonderful, although you should know I haven't seen it yet. Now, um, the uh, last bit, suggested hashtag for Twitter use, LSE nationalism, hash LSE nationalism. No more from me now. It's a pleasure to turn over to our panel. Mark, please start. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for being invited, even though I come from UCL. Um, I'd like to begin with a, a few brief comments in, in support of a handbook of this type. Uh, there are, as John says, many readers on the subject of nationalism. I'm sure many of you have seen some of them at least, but none to my knowledge on the history of nationalism. And so a book like this certainly more than fills a gap. Historians, in my view, ask questions which are slightly different from those asked by political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists, and specialists in international relations because of their explicit focus on the emergence, reproduction, absence, disappearance, development, and discontinuity of nationalism over time. This is not to contend, of course, that a social anthropologist such as Ernest Gellner, for instance, doesn't have a historical conception of the phenomenon. Of course he does. Indeed, his entire thesis rests on the transition from the agrarian epoch of human history to an industrial age, characterized, as he puts it, by the presence, not the absence, of the state, which the normative idea of the nation, in its modern sense, seems to presuppose. What Gellner does not do, though, um, beyond this typology of possible logical combinations of power, education, and culture, which is conveniently tabulated towards the end of nations and nationalism, for those who've got a mind to look it up. What Gellner doesn't do is to provide an historical explanation of nationalism, combining analysis of singular and repeated sets of actions of why this or that form of nationalism occurred in a particular region at a specific point of time. To take an example which arises in Montserrat Gibbonneau's chapter on nationalism without state in the handbook, why did Catalan nationalists favor a peaceful devolution of powers and financial resources, and at least some Basque nationalists within and beyond ETA countenance a violent struggle for secession and independence? The handbook's analytical distinction between sentiments or identities and ideas or doctrines of nationalism on the one hand, and politics, both internal and external on the other, during periods before, during, and in prospect after a world of nation-states, is designed to allow these particularizing but still comparative forms of historical analysis to take place. By the same token, the handbook and the contributions within it pose historical questions which, perhaps necessarily, remain open, and I'd like to look at five of these questions tonight. Yeah, sorry, I'm not sure how far this is. Maybe I should speak, maybe I should speak nearer. Is that working? Okay. Unfortunately, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go like that and see if it works. No. I'm a bit too tall for the mic. I'm going <laughs> to uh, bend my knees a bit. The first concerns what John Bruley uh, terms the danger, so the first question raised by the, uh, the uh, handbook, concerns what John Bruley terms the danger of nationalist methodology. To write a general history of nationalist politics, sentiments, and ideas, I agree with John that one must break this conflation of the national and nationalism. 
in order to avoid the pitfall of many historical surveys which treat nationalism as one aspect of national histories. And I should say at this point, um, the handbook, and John in the handbook, defines nationalism as the political ideology um, which claims that a unique nation exists, that this nation has a special value, and therefore right to existence and recognition, and that to secure this right, the nation must pursue autonomy, often understood as a sovereign nation-state. I agree that histories of nationalism become more critical and therefore more interesting as the differences between nation-states and nationalism become more salient. Most notably after the First World War, which had demonstrated the risks of an unfettered pursuit of national interests and missions, and after the unsuccessful implementation of Woodrow Wilson's democratic principle of national self-determination at Versailles in 1919. And then arguably towards the end of the Cold War in the 1970s and 1980s at a time of apparent economic and communicative globalization when international forms of cooperation and organization, GATS, for example, the Helsinki Accords or the ongoing reform of the European communities, all of these things seem to offer to many commentators in the West at least the best prospect of uniting Western states and controlling the transformation of the Soviet bloc. However, I'm not convinced, and this isn't a criticism of the case put forward in the um, handbook, but personally I'm not convinced that state-led nationalism can be separated from other types of nationalism. Internally, nationalists, however they're defined, were inevitably confronted with, involved in, and competing with appeals to popular sentiment and policies um, concerning the creation and reform of purportedly national institutions which had been advanced by governments and other agencies of the state, as Eric Hobsbawm's work on nations and nationalisms in 1780, amongst many others, makes plain. Externally, as James Mayles and Richard Kaplan's contributions to the handbook rightly suggest, the principle of state sovereignty and non-intervention in the internal affairs of states, despite being constantly tested and more occasionally undermined, especially in the period after the end of the Cold War, has nevertheless remained surprisingly resilient, shaping the wider environment in which nationalism emerged and has been maintained. The role of the state, of course, begs the wider question of whether nationalism was and is necessarily or primarily political, involving powers, whether institutional or legal, designed to enforce a putative nation's right to exist as an autonomous entity. Yet is this plausible? What creates group identities or instances of national consciousness which are coherent or compelling enough to make political action or the pursuit of autonomy worthwhile? John Hutchinson, in the reader and elsewhere, sorry, in the handbook and elsewhere, arguably convin argue, argues convincingly for the existence of cultural nationalist movements whose primary aim was the formation of national communities. Revivalism, the recovery and sustaining of national cultures in 18th and 19th century Europe, was combined with religious conceptions of being a chosen people and anthropological taxonomies of national characteristics, which were already widespread by the 17th century, to create a context where neoclassical and pre-romantic intellectual currents invested ideas of the nation with what he calls a political dynamism. Within the Grundtvigian movement in Denmark, which was 
organized by Lutheran pastors, teachers, and peasants, or the Young Ireland and Young Poland movements, which were dominated by students and other educated middle-class men. Political institutions were only a means to preserve the national community, and they should arise from that national cultural community, in Hutchinson's view. It's possible to contend that such cultural movements can only be understood in the context of representative politics and even democratization, where cultural groups and the rights of national minorities could be recognized constitutionally. Equally, one can argue that Montserrat Guibeno's Catalan, Scottish and Quebecois nationalist movements, which on the whole do not strive for independent nation states, exist within constitutional democratic political orders guaranteeing devolution or federalism. But these qualifications don't answer, in my view, a more fundamental question about the relative significance of politics and culture. The handbook justifiably focuses on the differences wrought by the emergence of politics. That is, in an adaptation of David Miller's definition, the process taking place within more or less stable institutions, whereby a group of people whose opinions or interests are initially divergent reach collective decisions which are generally regarded as binding on the group and are enforced as common policy. The focus entails a study of the modern era on the grounds, and I quote, that the history of nationalism is primarily a history of politics, of a political ideology, and of the, moment, uh, sorry, of the movements and organizations, including states, that subscribe to nationalist ideology. Whilst, of course, conceding that the advent and impact of such political modernity is varied, allowing, in the reader, Peter Burke, for example, to make the case that the United Provinces of of the Dutch Republic could be considered the first new nation 200 years in advance of the founding of the United States of America. Or Erika Benner to remind readers that Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a citizen of the Republic of Geneva, had put forward an exceptionally pure, voluntarist form of the civic national ideal as early as 1762 in Du Contrat Social. The broader question, however, and the third one raised by the handbook, I think, is whether distinct phases of nationalism can be distinguished beyond the volume's distinction between the emergence of nationalism, the existence of nationalism in a world of nation-states, and the possible eclipse or demise of nationalism in light of challenges to that world of nation-states. Is it useful to distinguish diachronically between the formulation of the idea of nationalism, its translation into politics, and especially following the creation of nation-states, its diffusion to large numbers of people as sentiment. These distinctions, as John Bruley acknowledges in the introduction, are redolent of Miroslav Hock's distinction in social preconditions of national revival in Europe between phase A, a period of scholarly interest, phase B, a period of patriotic agitation, and phase C, the rise of a mass national movement. In many instances, nationalist ideologies seem to emerge after or at the same time as other sets of political ideas, often as a response to contingent political crises, attempts at reform, war, or invasion. And not merely in long-established crisis-ridden monarchical states, such as Ancien Régime France, which is examined by Michael Rowe in the handbook, but also in unificatory or pan-nationalist cases of nationalism, such as Italy and Germany during the Napoleonic period or during the 1840s, which are examined by John uh, in the handbook, which are periods with which I'm familiar. 
It might be true that secessionist types of nationalism, the Slovak, Czech, Lithuanian, Estonian, Finnish, and even Norwegian cases, which are investigated in social preconditions, usually conform to the phases that Rock identifies. This tendency can only be established, however, through an extensive set of comparisons, which is the approach that Rock favours, the subtitle of social preconditions in English being a comparative analysis of the social composition of patriotic groups among the smaller European nations. It's quite a mouthful. It's also the approach adopted by the handbook. Perhaps in spite of its editor's fear, that historians' case studies are, and I quote, rarely generalised beyond the national frame or used for explicit comparison and that as the cases and their variations multiply, they outrun the capacity for systematic comparison. The question is, though, and this is my fourth question, not just what we're comparing and why. Um, Some authors, of course, examine social groups and social systems. Some analyze sets of symbols and ideas, and others focus on territory, regions, political institutions, or interstate relations, and that's, in my view, as it should be. But I think there's another question, which is, what are we attempting to explain? Since there's a difference between studies seeking to explain why a nationalist movement exists or comes into being, and those explaining how extensive or significant movements, organizations, or political programs are, and how profoundly attached their leaders and supporters are to them, which in turn is different from those studies aiming to account for the diverse content of a nationalist program or nationalist sets of belief. Behind many historical explanations, from Hans Kohn to Eric Hobsbawm, there's a half-concealed, barely articulated question, I believe, I'm not the only one, about radicalization and violence. Why did some nationalists come to harbor extreme views and to countenance terror and slaughter? Questions addressed explicitly in the handbook by Roger Eatwell and Oliver Zimmer. And why were supporters of apparently more moderate or banal, but not, as Michael Billig has rightly warned, necessarily benign forms of nationalism, so ready to die for the cause, as British, French, German, and other soldiers seem to prove in 1914. A priori, it seems to matter whether we as historians are trying to explain the emergence, scope, or content of nationalism, or its significance in specific historical circumstances, or for that matter, the depth of feeling and strength of allegiance of its leaders, activists, and followers. All of which brings me to my last question concerning the oft-decried and variously explained eclipse or superseding of nationalism in the context of various challenges to the nation-state. Here the handbook demonstrates the complexity of the issue, which doesn't merely involve analysis of transnational interactions and industrialized traffic and electric telecommunications on a global level, in Jürgen Osterhammel's phrase, but also the relationship between religion, including newly defined world religions and nationalism, internationalism, socialism and communism, um, pan-nationalism and imperialism in the respective contributions of Peter van der Veer, um, John Schwarzmantel, Camille Aydin and John Darwin in the handbook. Moreover, the development of national solidarities and the intensification of worldwide connections have occurred, along with all the other phenomena which I've just mentioned, concurrently, touching, interacting, intermingling and coinciding, in Osterhamel's opinion, in ways which seem to lack a pattern or order. Consequently, and in a fashion which is not always clear in recent transnational accounts, it's the task of historians not only to examine and explain these 
entangled connections over time, but to establish which processes were more or less important and in which period and set of conditions. I would argue that internal processes of reform, consolidation, territorialization were often uppermost, reinforced by conventions of non-intervention, state sovereignty, and interstate warfare abroad for much of the 19th and 20th centuries. But this, too, is merely a challengeable historical hypothesis. Thank you. First of all, let me say how full of admiration I am for this volume, which um, is certain to become a standard work of reference. I haven't read all the chapters in it. The ones I've read um, have really impressed me greatly. Uh, What I'd like to do today is to focus on two uh, significant categories that are discussed among many of the papers in this volume. One, that of the international community as a context for nationalism or the nation state, and the other, the globe or globalization. Um, James Merrill's uh, wonderful paper in this uh, volume um, describes how it is that uh, international society, as a collection of apparently sovereign states, sovereign in the old-fashioned sense, uh, comes to be gradually displaced, though never completely displaced, by an idea of the international community, Um, And in this process, of course, the idea of the nation as a community comes into a strange and ambiguous relationship with the international community as a community possibly of a similar kind. Curiously, though, what he does is to say um, somewhere towards the middle of his paper that the rise of fascism in Europe um, postponed the emergence of the idea of an international community, whereas I think precisely the opposite might be the case, that uh, the idea of a racial international community laid uh, uh, unintendedly, no doubt, the groundwork for, or at least one of the foundations disavowed subsequently of the international community that we are familiar with today, which after all is primarily justified uh, in terms of the human race. So from the Aryan race to the human race is certainly a leap but it's an interesting, there's an interesting commonality um, uh, uh, insofar as notions of species or race are made to uh, uh, serve as the foundation uh, for an international community. Um, what I think is, is interesting, in, uh, certainly in the post-Cold War period, about the way in which the human race comes to serve as such a foundation for an international community is the fact that it's no longer simply a regulative ideal. You know, we're not talking about humanity in a kind of, say, 18th or early 19th century way, but rather as an empirical and innumerable fact, right? The moment that the human race becomes countable, uh, it becomes a certain kind of empirical reality. And the moment, of course, we start imagining its possible extinction, whether in, uh, you know, in, during the Cold War, famously, uh, with, with a, uh, you know, the, the mutually assured destruction, and subsequently in ideas of uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction, climate change, uh, pandemics, etc., etc., it, it assumes a curious uh, and almost posthumous reality. So I think this is 
one way in which the idea of the human race uh, uh, comes to subtend notions of international community in our own time, certainly, I would argue, from the, from the Cold War, if not slightly earlier. Uh, and this, I think, is not about the international community displacing the national community, uh, but something much more ambiguous, I think, is going on here. Uh, because the question that, that is posed, I think, fundamentally is one of who or what set of institutions might be able to represent this thing called the human race or humanity, which is, of course, forever being referred to and constantly being referred to, whether we're talking about intervention, military intervention, or uh, medical and other forms of intervention. Uh, it's always humanity uh, and the human race um, that, that comes to the fore. Uh, to shamelessly refer to some of my own interests, I would argue, for instance, that uh, one of the uh, ways in which uh, militants belonging to this uh, um, vague uh, movement called Al-Qaeda operate, at least uh, theoretically or ideologically speaking, is precisely by uh, saying that they, that the Muslim community serves as a kind of miniaturized version of the human race, uh, and that they themselves as individuals uh, are m making the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of the human race, which is why when you look at the various pronouncements of Osama bin Laden and acolytes, you see such an interesting coming together of these languages of sacrifice and Islam together with that of humanity and the human race. Uh, I think it's too easy to dismiss bin Laden's many evocations of climate change, for instance, routinely referenced, uh, and not only in his public pronouncements, but as we find out post-Apotbad in his private uh, papers as well. Uh, it's too easy to dismiss this as mere rhetoric. Uh, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda's militants deliberately brought these things together because for them, Islam represented the human race. Uh, and they could make this claim precisely because the human race has become a kind of category that no longer, if it ever had, been available for institutional representation, certainly by the nation state. Um, this is true, I think, also of the great international controversies that are created over humanitarian intervention in our own time. Now, I'd like to move from that to the, the idea of the international community as um, to reinforce the point I made earlier about the international community not serving as a replacement or displacement of some conventionally figured nationalism or nation state, but rather as being linked with it in, a, in an ambiguous relationship. Because it seems to me, and uh, uh, I'm referring here to Montserrat's uh, paper, uh, among others, that the creation of these international institutions, let's say NAFTA or the European Union, actually make possible new forms of nationalism. And you know, a number of authors in this volume make that make that argument. Um, whether you look at the, uh, what Mark was referring to, the, the sort of peaceable forms, Quebec, Scotland, Catalonia, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, right? peaceable forms of claiming national uh, independence or integrity, um, or more violent ones, Bosnia, Kosovo, East Timor, South Sudan, uh, you see that it's it's a new idea of the international community to which, in a way, they, they all refer. Uh, the reason why uh, the EU becomes crucial for Catalonian or Scottish nationalists, uh, 
because you know they can conceive of their national integrity within an already existing international order, but apart from England or Britain, right? That the international community makes possible a kind of independence or integrity without the 19th century sense of full sovereignty. Uh, but at the same time, uh, and for Quebec, of course, it's NAFTA. Right? Uh, these themes are brought up over and over again in these nationalisms. But at the same time, you have these violent forms which also appeal to international, the international community, uh, if only by calling for intervention. So you, you can have a situation where you might have exacerbated nationalist violence, separatist nationalist violence, uh, in, precisely in order to attract in, intervention from the international community. So both these forms, I think, emerge, uh, they seem opposing as forms, but they emerge out of this context of the international community. Um, uh, and what goes by the way, what seems to go by the way, is, is, um, uh, is the kind of so fully sovereign nation state, arguably a myth, as John argues, as John states, um, uh, that we are told nationalism is all about. So if you look at um, what I, to be somewhat provocative, want to call these the, the great suicidal regimes of the recent past, uh, Serbia, Iraq, Libya, and perhaps the earliest of them all, Panama under Noriega, you know, here you have this extraordinary situation where regimes that seem apparently to be built on old-fashioned nationalism literally self-destruct uh, because they go up against insurmountable odds. And I think it's difficult to argue that they, sin they didn't know, they didn't realize, or you know, they were deluded, or it was an accident, or anything like that. Uh, there's something very curious in the, the self-destructiveness uh, within the context of a newly developing international community of these prior forms of, of the nation state, um, which are in, in many ways, of course, which were... Um, uh, Cold War formations um, that um, uh, that had survived that particular conflict. Moving then to my second theme of the, a global context or globalization, and the, the the crucial and very fine paper here is that of Jürgen Osterhammel, which Mark has already mentioned. Um, it struck me when I was reading, and it's a very impressive uh, paper to read, as his work always is. But it struck me how interesting it was that a subject like the global, which is everywhere claimed to be something entirely novel, a novel subject for scholarship, seems not to produce any novel methods of scholarship uh, that we think we can grasp what it is and elaborate what it is by relying upon inherited categories, methodologies, etc. And so many of these seem, in fact, to be um, almost 19th century in their derivation. So it's very commonplace uh, to think about globalization in, these, in the form of a survey, that classic 18th or 19th century form, right, where you, uh, you, you stand on a kind of Parnassian pinnacle and you survey the field uh, before you. Uh, it's also explicitly, they tend to be explicitly territorial or geographical in nature, right, rather than, as it were, properly speaking, global, where you, uh, the, 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 the metaphors are always those of expansion, as if of the circulation of commodities uh, or of military power. 
that the ways of thinking about the global seemed indistinguishable from ways of thinking about empire or capital. And I think this actually is a problem that we should all think about. I don't have a, another way of, you know, it's not like I have my own answer to this, but it's, I think, a, a worthwhile question to consider uh, because it might actually be worth looking at um, uh, being self-critical about these panoptic and classificatory and indeed, finally speaking, geopolitical ways of thinking about what a global arena might be or might look like. Um, and I think um, uh, one indication of this is how difficult it is, not for anthropologists, but for a number of historians to think about a global event or a global situation that is not immediately made comparative, right? Can you actually look at a particular place, as you think historians should, and say, here is where the global is happening without immediately referring to flows of various kinds and you know, comparisons of various sorts? Um, is it possible to think about the global in existential or psychological terms uh, and very particular terms rather than as a set of data that you collect and that, that become comparable in an entirely old-fashioned way? I think these are questions that, um, they're quite basic questions, but they're ones that we all face, not least myself. Um, because I think otherwise, it's difficult to make a historical investigation of anything that we might choose to give the label global to. And indeed, Osterhammel himself points out how it is that the historiography on globalization seems to have no periodization at all, that you know, people can begin and end whenever they want. You can have medieval globalism, ancient globality. Uh, you can have globalization at every level, that there is no agreed upon, not even a minimum set of agreed upon, as it were, temporalities. Uh, or periodization. And that surely should strike any historian as being a bit of a problem. Uh, I think one of the reasons why this is the case is precisely because we are so interested in these in mobilities and movements and processes uh, rather than thinking about perhaps immobilities and discontinuities, which are maybe just as important. Let me give you an example of what I mean, um, uh, some work that I would like to do in future. Um, in the United States, if you look at, say, Islam in the United States, think about an organization such as the Nation of Islam, which I, I mention in particular because it's a, it represents a form of nationality, uh, very intriguing. All right? here, it, here is a way, you know, African-American population, uh, it's a movement that begins in the 1930s that has, as part of its ideology, a vision of a partitioned United States where an African-American state is going to be created as part of this continental polity. And yet, so far so familiar, you might think, and yet that desire to create an African-American state within the United States remains vestigial, right? No one seems to put any real energy into it. What they do put their, as it were, uh, psychological or imaginative energies into is a completely uh, globalized view of themselves which seems to be entirely out of keeping with their own demographic and political position. Right? Uh, so if you take, for instance, the most famous of these figures, Malcolm X. Right? So Malcolm X, we know, starts out with the Nation of Islam. He abandons it. He goes to Mecca and, as it were, becomes a, in quotes, regular Orthodox Muslim. 
The irony of his doing so in Mecca, a country which at that time still had slavery, I think, is, should not be lost uh, upon any of us. But what I find interesting is the moment he joins this sort of, as it were, global or international form of Islam, he loses his political imagination in many interesting, in many uh, curious ways. He, his imagination becomes merely international. You know, Islam is made up of a bunch of countries with a bunch of different people in them. Whereas those who don't do this, so Malcolm X does this processes, mobilities, moving from place to place. He goes to the Muslim world, and he remains merely international. His mentor, Elijah Muhammad, who doesn't do any of this stuff, has this remarkably global image of the position of his people from the evil scientist Yaqub, who creates the white race by splicing genetic material, recessive genes together, right, to Ezekiel's wheel, which is circling, or the mother plane in outer space. It literally is a global imagination, and yet it's not tied to movement, dispersal, etc. at least not in this historical period. So I think, um, you know, I'm contrasting these two figures just to show that the global imagination might be a more appropriate an important factor of, as it were, sedentary populations, or populations that move within a certain country, than of the merely international vision of, uh, of someone like um, Malcolm X. Uh, and I, I'd like to end then by suggesting that, uh, if you will, properly global uh, uh, categories like the hemisphere of great political importance from the Monroe Doctrine onwards, right? The hemisphere, the planet, the human species, um, are not, in fact, territorial categories at all. The, the hemisphere is, has no topographical um, I, identity. It's an entirely abstract thing. It goes through the middle of oceans, etc. No one can live there. Um, similarly, the planet, you know, it's, uh, yes, there's geography in it, but it's not a geographical category. To use the nation of Islam again, it's a way of thinking about the position of any particular group in a kind of intergalactic or planetary context, right? Uh, it's uh, fascinating in that way. And the species also, right? So that really if we are going to look at the way in which these categories, which I argue are global in a certain way that others are not, the human race, the hemisphere, uh, the, 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 the planet, the planet Earth, then we will have to actually think beyond movement, mobility, geography, territoriality, and the like. Um, and that, I think, will provide us yet another way of thinking about the meaning of nationalism and nationality in our own time. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for turning out. I'm going to divide my comments into two sections. Firstly, a little bit about the mad enterprise of editing this book. And then secondly, to respond to some of the comments. First thing I want to do is thank you to the 35 other historians who were mad enough to join me on this enterprise, some of whom I'm very glad uh, can be here uh, today. It just occurred to me, actually, to, to tell a little story about the uh, one, one contribution from these contributors which indicated what a difficult enterprise this was. I do not have a very strong visual sense. I'm not very good at book covers. 
So I sent an email out to all the contributors to ask any ideas for a book cover. I immediately got an answer back from the late Fred Halliday. Piles of bodies, he said. Sebonich or something like that. That's what nationalism is about. Piles of bodies. Within 24 hours, I received an email from Miroslav Hroch, who said, who is this guy Halliday? I'm not sure I want to contribute to a book that this man has contributed to. Hroch writes about small nation nationalism in 19th century Europe. And what Hroch focused a lot of his effort on was the efforts, kind of the work that John Hutchinson talked about in cultural nationalism, of small communities to express their sense of dignity, to stand up to what they saw as large nations which oppressed them. Fred Hallady was writing about imperial nationalism, he was writing about the Middle East, and he was concerned with nationalism of the kind that actually oppressed others. We hear about the Janus face of nationalism, and I suddenly thought, my God, my contributors have such different views about this subject. And historians, of course, trying to actually, although my contributors have been very good, trying to get historians organized in any phalanx is like trying to shepherd cats, because historians are concerned with the particular, and they're concerned with the particular in particular ways. So it's quite difficult to actually produce a handbook. The reason I nevertheless tried to do it was because I was struck by the disjunction between, it's already been alluded to by Mark, the disjunction between the general social scientific treatments of nationalism, which actually do concern themselves with something that we might call nationalism as such, nationalism as a distinct subject, but by and large do it in ahistorical ways. And on the other hand, the historian's way of dealing with a subject, which is rich and particular, but by and large doesn't look at nationalism as such. It looks at nationalism in France, nationalism in Nigeria, nationalism in Brazil. And it's attached to the apparently commonsensical notion that nationalism has something to do with nations and nation-states. Well, obviously... It does have something to do with nations and nation-states. But if we go back to that social science literature, one of the things that social science literature emphasizes, the so-called modernist view, is that in many ways nationalism precedes nations and nation-states. As Ernest Gellner put it in his typically provocative way, nationalism creates nations. Now, if that's the case, logically, nationalism exists to some extent as a distinct subject apart from nations and nation-states. Of course, once nation-states are formed, the nationalists that are associated with that celebrate that as the most authentic expression of nationalism. Professional historiography was shaped around the formation of the nation-states, certainly in Europe. And when people say, I am a German historian, or I am a French historian, they don't mean I am German and I am an historian. They mean I am an historian of Germany. And by and large... There is this concern, therefore, with nationalism as primarily an aspect of national history. And I thought to myself, well, what if we could get historians to write about nationalism detached from national history? Might we then introduce some of the insights of that general social science, but this time round with real historical detail, the only kind of real detail we can actually have about human communities of any size? So... That was the leading idea 
behind the handbook. But I would say that I didn't recruit people in the sense of, do you agree with me about nationalism? Um, don't suppose I could have persuaded that many people to, uh, on that basis. But simply on the grounds that these were jolly good historians who knew about particular places and would write a good chapter. And they've done so. But there was one negative rule which guided me throughout. Nobody would write a, a chapter on national history. So if you want to go to this book to find out about French nationalism or Nigerian nationalism in terms of a, a state-centered nationalism, you probably won't find very much. But then you can always read all the conventional histories which do that. So instead, I tried something else. Um, Craig Calhoun has already said something about the structuring of the book and the different chapters, so I can actually, that saves me a few minutes, I can, uh, I can skip that. But the idea was, for example, in the first part of the book, it was kind of framing the subject of, of nationalism as politics. I want to come back to why I think the politics really matters the most. Um, framing the subject, the, there were two chapters on the ideas of nationalism. One on Western ideas, but the other quite deliberately, because the subject has been very Eurocentric, on non-Western ideas about nationalism. There is uh, John Hutchinson's study of cultural nationalism. There's um, Peter Burke's on, on anticipations, if you like, of nationalism in early uh, modern Europe. There are later sections on some of the problems that arise once we've got, or think we've got, a world of sovereign nation-states. We never actually have that, but at a certain point we believe rather more strongly than other times that we do have such a world to do with things like intervention, international relations, uh, everyday life. There are, uh, as a section concerned with alternatives or rivals to nationalism, such as international socialism, uh, religion, uh, and so on. The two central sections are about the politics. Um, there are lots of studies and concerns of nationalism about subjects other than politics, but I don't think we would actually study nationalism but for its political importance. Um, I personally think that most nationalist intellectuals uh, are not very interesting. The nationalist idea is so obviously wrong that uh, uh, it, the thing to explain is not its rightness or its wrongness, but why on earth it ever got to be believed that much. Fred Halliday, who kept himself in check for most of, the, of his chapter, at the very last cha uh, paragraph wants to say 99% of the world believe that we're divided into nations and 99% of the world is wrong. To which I said, but if 99% of the world believe it, is it in some extent true by virtue of them believing it? And in that, those two sections, it's divided very crudely between before the nation-state and after the nation-state because clearly it seems to me the formation of a nation-state structures and channels nationalism in a way that is not the case before. But what I want to try and get across is that Nationalism, nevertheless, remains much more than just that which is tied to the nation-state. There are many forms of nationalism which could be called failure, but at a time they were very important and they tell us a lot about the quality of that world. Pan-nationalism, for example, in the first half of the 20th century. The practical problem was how did I get historians who, by and large, most of us have grown up in this national framing, I'm a German historian, how do we break from that national? And the idea I came up with, it's practical um, as well as breaking with the national, is the idea of focusing on regions. 
because historians will know about regions. So um, Bruce Berman and John Lonsdale, who I'm very glad to see you today, come write about sub-Saharan Africa. I've got two, two historians, a Mexicanist and a North Americanist, to write about colonial, the colonial period in the Americas. And so I kind of divide most of the world up into regions and ask people to write about nationalism in those regions and then we can see how that side of nationalism relates to the formation of actual nation states. I can't begin to go on about all the different and diverse ways the contributors have written about that. Thought experiments that people have done. Why did French Indochina break up into a series of nation states, whereas the Dutch East Indies by and large remained a single nation state, although it seems in many ways to have been more likely to have broken up? Just one kind of question. So that, that was the idea, and the principal idea is that we should think of the nationalisms that succeed, that is, in a sense, the nationalism associated with the actual nation-states that come about, as simply one small subset of all the actual nationalisms that there were. And the nation-states are surrounded by nationalisms that challenge the forms that they now have, don't just uh, uh, buttress them. So that's the idea behind the, behind the book, and... Um, it's only as good as its parts, um, and it's up to the readers to decide how good that is. Just very quickly, to respond to, to, to some of the points, there's, there's too many, too rich for me to do very much. But just quickly, some of the thoughts on uh, what, Faisal and, uh, what Mark and Faisal had to say. Um, to take Mark, I... I agree about the criticisms to do with what, what I would call methodological nationalism, that is, associating nationalism with the national. Um, that is the central concern of, of the book, in a way. That is the central thrust of, of the book. Um, in terms of phases, uh, I think Miroslav ideas of this cultural stage, then this elite political stage, and then this mass political stage works very well for the particular class of nationalisms that Miroslav Hoch specialises in. His chapter is on uh, small nation nationalisms in the Ottoman and Habsburg empires. And to some extent, this idea of a group of intellectuals who get together to defend the idea of the Czech or the Finnish or the Flemish uh, national culture, and then a group of an elite who then begin to agitate around that, and then only gradually the movement towards mass movement and strong political demands works for, those, for that particular class, and therefore it's really good there. I'm not sure it travels. I'm not so sure it travels to other places in, in, in quite the same way. I would just, I would just leave it uh, uh, at that. Historians... Um, are often anti-nationalist, particularly in, in, in certain parts of the West since the Second World War when nationalism has by and large become a boo word and people try to appropriate some other nice word like patriotism instead, although I've never been able to figure out the difference between those two things other than being a boo word and a hooray word. Um, the, nevertheless, they can be locked into the national. In my own particular field, there's something called the German critical school which actually is extremely critical of German history. Germany at some point took the wrong path, the special path, the wrong path that led ultimately to the horrors of the Third Reich. Very anti-nationalist, but they actually believe there is a distinct kind of German nationalism, a distinct kind of national quality to the nationalism of Germany. In that sense, they're anti-nationalist, but they're methodologically nationalist. 
Finally, in, in terms of explanations, I, I gave up some years ago on having an explanation for nationalism. Um, Ernest Gellner is a genius, was a genius. He had made the most ambitious attempts to come up with a theory. A, I don't think it works, and B, the one subject that Ernest Gellner never really took very seriously was history. And it's bringing back history into the study of nationalism, I think, is what I want to do, see done in this handbook. In response to Faisal's comments, I, I, I find this idea about humanity fascinating. What I would argue is that, and it comes out, I think, very well in Peter van der Veer's chapter on religion, where van der Veer says religion is a similar kind of category to nation. We shouldn't think of these as, in the first instance, opposed, but similar kinds of categories. Um, and one can add race, culture, class, humanity. Herder, one of the great writers about national peculiarity, nevertheless insisted that this national peculiarity could be brought together into humanity. Humanity was articulated through national particularity. So for me what's interesting is why do all these concepts emerge in a related kind of way? They get opposed to one another, but they can only oppose one another because actually they occupy the same ground. Um, I take the point about there being something slightly wrong about this notion of the national as territorial, um, concentrated in particular places. One of the things I want to, that comes across in a lot of the studies in the book is that nationalists often live most of their lives outside the nation, learn most of their ideas about the nation outside of the nation to which they're oriented, um, spend a lot of time with other nationalists from other nations giving each other the same kinds of ideas. Nationalism in that sense is global. It travels a lot. It's very mobile. Uh, it's not actually tied specifically to its own uh, nations. Um, we do have this belief um, that there was something created called a world of nation states. I'm not sure that it ever really happened in any real sense, but certainly the belief that it happened existed for a short period of time. I suspect what's happening now is not so much something new called globalization as the erosion of the belief in that rather mythical world of sovereign nation states. And finally, that's, that was pretty much, oh yeah, the, the oh, suicidal regimes. I find that fascinating. As a German historian, of course, the, the, probably the most significant suicidal regime would appear to be the Third Reich, which did literally, of course, end with uh, the leader of that uh, committing suicide. I don't, I'm not sure that I buy that idea of suicide in the sense that I don't think Hitler set out to commit suicide in a bunker in 1945. I think that what we're dealing here with is state elites and leaders who pursue courses of action which become disastrous and which we might have said were obviously going to become disastrous afterwards, but human beings have a tremendous capacity to fool themselves that the enterprises in which they're engaged will succeed. Many of his most realistic generals thought in 1941 that, well, this man is a genius and perhaps the invasion of the Soviet Union won't go so wrong. More interesting for me is why those leaders don't get displaced when it's obvious that they are taking their whole society into destruction. And there, you know, there are, particularly in Kershaw's book, The End, for that particular case, shows just how that was possible.
So those are my responses, very inadequate to uh, those people, uh, to, the, to those comments. Um, I've got no final sort of cri de cœur. When I finally did decide on the book cover, and I think so, I got the idea from Joya Chatterjee, one of the contributors, it's a Congress party election poster. And as you'll see, uh, uh, the, the toiling masses are going up a circuitous mountain path, being whipped on by some sadistic-looking Europeans who look to me, from my stereotype, to be Italians, because they've got very thin moustaches, but I'm sure are meant to be Brits. At the top of the mountain is a temple with the Indian national flag flying, and hovering above the masses as they... The whipping, of course, whips them on up the mountain rather than pushing them back down the mountain. Hovering above them is Gandhi and Nehru, beckoning them on, inspiring them. And for me, it's not piles of bodies. To some extent, it's an ennobling image. But above all, it has the two qualities I associate with nationalism. On the one hand, it's very particular. It has to be India. I don't think any authentic nationalist image can not be particular and self-referential. But on the other hand, once you break it down into that, those masses, those inspiring leaders, that repression, that goal, that final destination, it's like any other nationalism. And it's that combination of trying to get across the idea of the particularity of nationalism, but in many ways it's shared features across all the different kinds of nationalism that I hope to some extent might be conveyed in this book. Thank you. All right, that was great, that was rich, that was interesting, it was occasionally provocative. Now your turn to be great, rich, interesting, and provocative back. We have about 15 minutes for questions. Let's take the man the blazer right there. And please say who you are, if you will, and take the microphone from the red-shirted steward. Uh, mere member of the public, um, one issue that hasn't been covered this evening is supranational bodies. History tells us that whatever supranational body is created, be it Roman, Ottoman, Third Reich, um, British Empire, ultimately they fail and their, their lifespan isn't that long. We now have the present problem of the EU and what will happen there. Will it move closer or will it disintegrate? Does the panel feel it will survive as a supranational body? And if so, in what capacity? Okay, the problems of the EU and supranational body. Shall I take two or three of these and then let you answer in terms? Is that okay? Yeah. Black sweater, yeah. Uh, hi, uh, Eric Kaufman from Birkbeck. We're, this talk sponsored by the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. I didn't hear the term ethnicity used. I'd like to know how panelists think the two terms are related, because actually ethnicity seems to be common currency in the social sciences, much more so, and nationalism in history. So. Okay. Another question. There's another question in the back, just behind there, all the way to the wall. Hi, um, I'm a PhD student at SOAS. My question is for uh, Dr. Devji. Um, Nikki Keddy and Olivier Roy um, have both claimed that um, 
religious politics, you know, reached kind of crossroads where it either had to embrace the transnational or the profoundly national, the sort of Hamas versus Al-Qaeda dichotomy. And most of your comments have tended to focus on the Al-Qaeda sort of global idealist version. In, in your view, um, is, is this dichotomy real? And do you see, I mean, do you focus on the transnational because it's more interesting or because you think that it, the ultimate triumph of religious politics will be, uh, that religious politics is inevitably towards the, the universal cu- community? Thanks. Okay. Um, let me take one more. The man in the plaid jacket and right there. Yeah. A clarificatory question for Dr. Devji, please. Um, Identification. (laughs) Hi, Kambara, LSE Center for Philosophy. Is there a difference between, or do you distinguish between international community and international society? By society, I mean a framework which tries to establish mechanisms for the reconciliation of interests, different interests. The community has a focus in the middle a church, for instance. What would be a focus when we talk about humanity? Okay. Do you want to uh, just go down? John, do you want to go first? Or we can just go across here. Uh, and pick yeah. whichever ones you want to respond to of the questions. It should be on, I think. You, don't, you shouldn't have to do anything. Um, well, uh, the first question... Um, Everything fails in the long term. Um, National states have actually existed for a lot less time than a number of the empires uh, that you mentioned. So by by human standards, it's not obvious that empires are less successful political forms uh, than nation states. Who knows what we might be saying in in 50 years' time. Um, The... The big problem, I mean, again, to put it in historical perspective, interesting, that after the Versailles Peace Conference, Antoine condemned the principle of national self-determination. He said, this was a principle that might make sense for some parts of the world, which had evolved to this over some decades and centuries, but was utterly destructive applied to Southeast Asia, And that he advocated some other kind of political principle. As we know, that those states at that time failed to prevail between the resurgent Germany and the resurgent Soviet Union, um, and fell successively under their imperial rule. And subsequently, uh, I think uh, many political elites in those countries have concluded that again they need some other umbrella type of political relationship. In other words, to be a sovereign nation state, you need to actually be in some bigger kind of umbrella organisation. Um, I'm a great enthusiast for the EU, not, not because of the art of the economics, but because of precisely that experiment in trying to produce that kind of umbrella political organisation. In terms of longevity, I don't think it's obvious that uh, empires are in a little worse track record than any other kind of policy. Um, and on ethnicity, to, to account Clearly, uh, many nationalist uh, creeds, many nationalist beliefs, many nationalist uh, identities are associated with ethnicity. I have a real problem. I don't 
And then when I was interviewed for the job here, uh, I said at the end of the interview, I'm glad you asked me questions about nationalism because I know what it is. So it's a thing. I'm glad you didn't ask me any questions about ethnicity. So I really am not sure that I know what it means. Anymore. It meant something completely different, for example, circa 1900 in the USA, it meant basically the black race question. It meant something else in colonial anthropology when it was the study of uh, small-scale communities, often in tribes. Um, the term means something very different now when the phrases like ethnic cleansing and ethnocide were developed. It's become a kind of um, major concern of political and other social scientists looking at something they call ethnic politics in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, which both John Donson and Bruce Berman have many of them. So, because it means so many different things, because it's what Chandra calls an umbrella classification, which can refer to religion, to language, to uh, so-called common origin, so-called history, I actually don't really know in any systematic way, either historically or any other way, to relate to the I do understand a bit. Okay, Mark. Just get closer to it. In this way, in case that one's not, okay. take this one. Powered <laughs> <laughs> up now. Habermas argued, um, uh, excellent. <laughs> Habermas argued um, from the 1990s onwards that the, the nation, uh, nation state was, as he put it, a circulatory process of communication, politics, and law, and all these things kept going round for about 200 years. It's relatively new in that sense. And the European Union was just starting that process. I don't, myself, uh, think that the European Union will will end uh, in, the next, in the next 10 years. Um, on the question of ethnicity and nationalism, I think a couple of the contributors argued that ethnicity was a group, um, a potentially national group, without political aspirations. They weren't aspiring uh, for some sort of autonomy. I'm not sure that that adequately distinguishes between the groups. Um, my own rule of distinction between ethnicity and, and nationalism would relate to the myths of dissent which seem to usually if not always be attached to um, ethnicity and not always attached uh, to concepts of a nation Aizel? Um, just a couple of words on it's not working yeah. no. <laughs> take the one that works Just a couple of words on, um, on the EU thing and then moving on to the particular questions that were asked me. I mean, it's, the EU is not a phenomenon, if I can call it that, that I work on, but what's, from outside the study of it, what strikes me about this curious organization is that it's, while being something greater than a trading bloc or a military uh, uh, you know, alliance, um, it's not uh, one that has, so it, you know, it, it's not NAFTA, it's not NATO, 
uh, and yet it's not uh, an organization that has, as it were, sovereignty in the way that we recognize it. And that's what makes it so uh, such a butt of jokes in the United States in particular. I'm thinking of Robert Kagan's book, um, I forget what it was now called. You know, the, the EU has, you know, it can't really do anything because it has no decision-making capacity because oddly it's made up of sovereign states, states that still claim sovereignty. What I think is interesting about it is that it gives, seems to give rise to a, a kind of renewed movement um, uh, of, of civilization, the idea of European speaking, you know, Habermas, whom you mentioned, um, the recently resigned pope, um, uh, I think there's a new one. We already have a new one. But the, the recently resigned Pope, you know, these and many others, of course, the idea of European civilization seems to have sort of come in to um, or been revived with all its imperial connotations, which I think are worth exploring uh, and I think have meaning in, in this situation of a, of a really quite unique agglomeration of states which yet have, uh, has no sovereignty built into it. About ethnicity, I think the, uh, you know, this too is a really changeable thing. If, if, if I look at my area of primary concern, India, it seems to me that you know, here is a country which is unusual in many respects. One of the ways in which it's unusual is that tens of millions of people, of Indians, have no language to communicate with tens of millions of other Indians. I mean, it's, it's not simply the diversity and size of the country. It's a country which has no even mythical ethnicity, no shared language at all, unless it's English at the elite level. Uh, and yet we don't say it's not a nation state. And it strikes me that now um, uh, uh, my colleague at, at Yale, Karuna Mantana, has made this argument that the, the interest of Indians, of many Indians politically, is not in ethnicity or indeed nationality. It's democracy. It's the idea of democratic institutions that has come to the fore and not anxieties about who we are as a nation. And, and you know, equality, uh, 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 you know, op in, uh, instances of oppression, etc. So here we're talking about a vast nation state that doesn't seem to possess at least some of the major, um, uh, you know, the usually accepted um, contents of nationalism that seems to have actually, uh, at least in, in certain major instances, moved outside their purview. About the two questions that were asked of me, the sort of Al-Qaeda transnationalism, I mean, I think, and I always said this in my own work, Al-Qaeda was a trans, not, a, not just a transnational, but a transitional phenomenon. It's no longer really with us. Um, it's a post-Cold War, it's a phenomenon in a way that comes out of the Cold War. It doesn't have its own, as it were, peculiar history. Its consequences are very significant, and I think they're significant not simply because of security issues, but rather because they seem to have, um, well, first of all, pushed the Islamists off the map as far as radicalism is concerned and pushed them in a really highly conservative direction, conservative not simply socially conservative as they always were, but economically and politically conservative as well. They too were Cold War remnants, and you see their inability to deal with um, the world that exists around them in the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt or indeed in Tunisia. So these are the, the supposed successors of the Arab Spring, we are told. And yet, to my mind, they seem to have very little uh, in them. Um, uh, the other thing, of course, is that the Arab Spring uh, is also interesting in the way that it takes up some of these Al-Qaeda-like, if you want to use that uh, uh, phraseology, uh, behaviors 
and transforms them. So you have these mimicking, these imitative demonstrations from one country to another in North Africa uh, in, the, in, in, the similar, in a similar way in which militant uh, rhetoric and practices used to be mimicked by people who were dis- not connected to each other at all, right, who didn't talk to each other, who didn't do anything. Similarly, it seems to me in the Middle East. But the mimicking has not resulted in a kind of, it seems to, on the one hand, be the manifestation of that mythical entity which used to be boasted about Arab nationalism, but which never apparently existed, and yet at the same time is highly nationalist, right? So they, they stopped at borders. It was about Egypt. It was about Tunisia. It wasn't about creating a single Arab state. Uh, so it, it, made, it gave reality, a certain reality to Arab nationalism while divesting it of its, of its, um, of its as it were, pan-regional uh, uh, thrust. And it's the, it's, a, it's, it, it, it's the way in which the, the form of the mediated form of imitation gets taken up and absorbed within national movements that I find interesting there. Uh, um, of course, uh, in the last question on, on humanity, I was, of course, taking this distinction uh, from the, the very fine essay in the volume by James Mell, uh, uh, International Society and International Community. Um, uh, he doesn't really make a big point about humanity being substratum or the foundation for international community, but I think that certainly in the way in which we use that term, we prefigure humanity or the human race uh, as being part of it. Of course, this has a lengthy history, as John points out, so arguably even the League of Nations had with it, you know, uh, there, there were these attempts to think about international law as something that, for the first time, that would spread across the whole world, and that would, uh, in part, be about um, uh, dealing with the future of humanity, however conceived. Um, today, of course, in, you know, this has come back to us, um, uh, partly with the, with the UN, partly with different nation states organizations. But I think the, the thing about it is that uh, whether or not uh, the United Nations, for instance, can represent humanity is an apples and oranges kind of question because it seems to me as far as, for instance, climate change is concerned, the problem of climate change as a planetary problem seems to be incommensurable with the organizational setup of the United Nations and nation states in particular. That they, you know, they, they can't, in fact, represent it. They can't, in fact, seem to do anything about it uh, uh, without rethinking, perhaps, the forms of organization that international politics is, is made up of. So I think that is, in fact, the biggest problem that is faced. But this is entirely speculative on my part. Okay, let's take just a couple more questions and have answers for these first. Yeah. Red tie. Hi, I'm Bruce Brown, one of the co-authors of this volume now at the University of Cambridge. I want to add a footnote to the comments about Malcolm X because it opens a very interesting issue in relationship to this subject. I have no fear of saying I was the only person in this room who heard Malcolm deliver his last speech in the old theater at the main building of the LSE in 1968. Um, It was a packed house, if I can tell you, people hanging off the rafters, uh, and a very skeptical audience at the LSE of 1968. Nobody's skeptical here now. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly about black nationalism. He, had come, he was on his way back from having done the Hajj. 
And he stood up and the first thing he said was, I have become a real Muslim. And one of the things that they told me when I consulted with the scholars in the process was lose the racism. See yourself in relationship to a global community um, and a people, all of whom you have a solidarity. And he then went on to talk about American politics. Remember, it's 1968. This is the civil rights movement. This is the anti war movement. These are hundreds of thousands of people in the streets on this issue. And he starts talking about the issues of class and imperialism. At the end of which, she does stand in ovation from that audience. Ten days later, he was dead. As we discussed it here at that time, we were quite sure that that shift in his focus was what brought his assassination. As the leader of the nation of Islam, he was, in the American context, an easily containable extremist figure, making outrageous statements broadcast on the media and he could be pushed into the margin. Making statements like he heard here in the old theater, he had opened up another issue, and that was the relationship between nationalism and class. And it created, at least for me, a path that now I understand nationalism, and particularly ethno-nationalism, as the an ideology of the European right, Thanks. The red sweater in the back over here on the left, my left. Hi, I'm Ramin, a humble member of public. Uh, overall, do you find globalization as a useful concept? All right, let's move to the conclusion then. Any thoughts you have on these comments? And we'll wrap it up. And so we want to start. You want, John doesn't want to start, so let's send it down to you, Faisal. Yes, I have the only working microphone, so that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for those uh, comments on Malcolm X. I, I, I agree, of course, in the sense that, um, you know, the nation of Islam's ideology, um, while very interesting, can be also a comic uh, to others' ideology, and it remains trapped, with, trapped within a racial, racialized discourse. But the thing about Malcolm X that I find somewhat disturbing um, is that it's not clear what he got out of the global Muslim Ummah. In other words, you know, going to Mecca, which is a place, and the pilgrimage is not exactly a racially harmonious event. You know, it's entirely hierarchical and deeply racialized, if not racist, um, to this day. Uh, so there seems to have been a strange, willing blindness. And of course, remember who he met, the Saudi king, various dictators, you know, these were going to be his friends. So I don't think he was approaching, as it were, the global Muslim ummah in the... Um, you know, in perhaps the best way. So there was a class critique in the U.S., but in the Muslim world, it was the kings and the dictators whom he was meeting. So coming it from the other end, I think it's... Uh, and what, you know, what he or his people gained from it is another question. Because the thing is, to be lost where? If you're going to be lost within white America or lost within this thing called the global Muslim ummah, uh, 
whose, whose avatars uh, are there and there to, whether in the form of kings or dictators, are there to convert you to the right Islam and completely strip you of whatever it is that you might have. Of course, this is an excessive reading on my part, but it just, I think the interesting point is to note how that politics, as you rightly say, plays in, played in the United States in a radical and revolutionary way and how, it, uh, how the invocation of the Muslim ummah uh, as far as the Muslim world was concerned, uh, it was much more problematic and involved a kind of deliberate, it seems to me, set of blindnesses without, of course, going on to suggest that Elijah Muhammad and his brand of Nation of Islam or Louis Farrakhan uh, now is you know, um, particularly more salutary. Um, about globalization, I mean, I think others can speak to it. I mean, I... We are forced to attend to it because, of course, it's, uh, it's become a kind of buzzword, uh, uh, but also a serious uh, object of, of study and analysis. Uh, I find it interesting, if, um, for, for that reason, if, not, if nothing else, that a lot of the people I, or movements that I look at are using this, uh, not only the word, but thinking about the world differently. Um, therefore, you know, so that if you're looking at, um, uh, you know, Muslim thinkers of, you know, the way in which the idea of world, dunya, for instance, right, the world which, whose antonyms, you know, this world and the other world, the idea of worldliness, those all get erased when ideas, the term globe comes into being. So there's a, there's a strange evacuation of older forms of religiosity, this world and the next world. It's not like it entirely disappears, but the, the, the use of the terminology of globe and globalization gives an entirely new context to religious life. And in that sense, I find it interesting without having to make any uh, uh, sort of truth statements about what it, what it is and whether it's movement or mobility or anything else. But that's my, my own myopia as an intellectual historian. Um. I, I agree with what Faisal says about um, globali- globalization. Mainly I work as a 19th century um, historian, and Jürgen Osterhammel, for me, is the author of a, a very large book on the transformation of the world in the German title of the work, um, in which he argues that globalization occurs a hundred or more years before what we term or have termed globalization in the later 20th century. I'm not convinced that globalization in the sense that it was used in the 1970s, 1980s and since is comparable to other forms of movement in, in the world as a 19th century historian. It seems to me in terms of migration, in terms of trade, in terms of communication, um, 95% of these things, trade, communication, movement, physical movement of persons, is be- between European states and the United States. Um, of course, there's an awareness of wider world, and there are lots of adverts and visual representations of that wider world um, in lots of different contexts. There are, for example, shipping lines um, in all the magazines that I work on in the 19th century showed Hamburg and London um, with great big spider web-like networks to all parts of the world. But to my mind, these networks emphasize 
the vastness of the spaces between. Um, and it, it's not, in my reading of Jules Verne's um, 80 Days Around the World, that this was, in some sense, an expected uh, uh, circumnavigation of the globe. This was an adventure, and this was something... Um, the, f- the consequences of which, or the the the, uh, the the events of which, were not to be foreseen. So, globalization, I think, is a term. It's difficult to compare what Ossahamel uses it to describe in the 19th century with the way in which it's been used in the late 20th century. I don't have much to say on Malcolm X. Um, I would say, though, that the thesis um, about a shift from liberal nationalism to conservative forms of nationalism, integral nationalism, and, and so on, are often seen to take place in the late 19th century. And it's very difficult to establish that the attempts to emancipate populations in the name of uh, nations and national representative assemblies, institutions, constitutions, and so forth, it's very difficult to prove in the late 19th century that these things simply disappear and are no longer associated with the terms um, used to describe nations. Nationalist in French, Deutsch Nationale in German, uh, seem to be apart from moderate national opinion, and the two sets of languages coexist. Um, and I'm not sure that that alters um, completely uh, during the 20th century, although, of course, the impact of fascism, national socialism, racism clearly does have an impact. I, when I came to LSE... I'm going to respond to the globalization question. When I came to LSE, I moved from a lifetime in history departments to coming to uh, the government department, but in, nowadays I think it would be called politics uh, if it had been a more modern university. Um, and, and so I found lots of people studying these things called globalization. So, you know, I, I, I got interested in it, and I still don't know what it is. Um, it, it, it seems to have no agents. It's, it's a whole bunch of processes um, and I just find that particularly when I'm trying to teach a uh, course on it uh, or courses that relate to it, I, I have to, in a, in a kind of very prosaic historian's way, break it down into a bunch of things. Is it people who are moving? Is it capital that is moving? Is it information that is moving? Is it commodities that are moving? Is it about how quick they move or what proportion of them move? And is it about how far they move? Do they have to go lots, lots of distance all around the world, or can we have globalization which doesn't include some bits of the world? When I break it down into all those things, I find that it's not a single concept. I also find that it's not recent. Um, and in particular, I'm, as I'm going to answer as a historian of nationalism now, I find that when I first approached the literature, there seemed to be one simple question which in terms had one simple assumption I find the question uninteresting and the assumption incredible. The assumption was that there was something called globalization that comes after the world of nation-states had been created. So first of all, nationalism, age of nationalism, nation-states, and then, boom, something along called globalization. And the question was, will globalization destroy, transform, or make no difference whatsoever to the nation-state? 
To which I think the conventional answer is something in the middle. Um, I, I, I now am trying to write this global history of nationalism. I would actually say globalization in terms of specific processes, for example, political and military and certain kind of economic relationships, precedes the age of nationalism. That nationalism itself is impossible to understand except as a set of global relationships. And that what we are dealing with is, 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 is a new phase in which our belief in this false thing called a world of sovereign nation-states is declining, and we think that it actually means the thing itself is declining, but it never actually existed really in the first place. There have always been some nation-states that are far more sovereign than other nation-states, whatever international law might say. Uh, there are always certain kinds of quasi-imperial relationships, and they take place in a global way. So, yeah, I don't actually find much use in the concept, but I find trying to understand nationalism in a global way useful. All right. With that, let me remind you all that you're invited to reception on the senior dining room of the LSE, the fifth floor of the main building. Um, and there will be copies of the book for you to purchase, a chance to talk to the panelists. Please join us there. And please join me now in thanking our panelists for talking. talk.